Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. From my perspective, a lot of people spend time on things that are emotionally vaccine and draining, but don't actually lead to any differential. And there was a hysterical meme, I thought, that basically was saying, what happened? I posted about this 12 times and nothing changed. I think that might be a little bit a symptom of our generation, that we think because we get amped about it on social media, something's going to change. And in fact, nothing's going to change because of that. You actually have to make the action yourself. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. My guest today is Cody Sanchez, and I have to say that you are one of the most difficult guests I've ever researched, Cody. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's thrilled to be here. And uh, I mean that in the nicest possible way. I kept on going down rabbit holes of what you've done, are doing, and planning to do. I'll just quickly run through a brief and incomplete list. You're a reformed journalist, (laughs) the best kind of journalist in my opinion, former mutual fund manager at Goldman Sachs, consultant for Facebook, Amazon, Apple. You are a doctor, PhD from FGV Brazil. You were an investment banker or working in investment banking, a cannabis venture capital pioneer, author of the Contrarian Thinking newsletter, which I enjoy, and coolest of all, a columnist in Rolling Stone magazine. (laughs) I guess you're the wrong personality type to end up as a partner at uh, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've had some fun roads, that's for sure. Yeah. So tell us about your life right now at the moment. I mean, we're just coming out. It's the big thaw, I believe, in Austin. But um, work-wise, what are you working on right now? I think the thing that's taking up most of my attention at the moment is I've been obsessed with um, you know, the world of online media and what I call the U Corporation. So the corporations of you as an individual. And so I sort of built one starting in 2020 called Contrarian Thinking. And, you know, it's a newsletter and now it's becoming a bit of a media business. Now we have, you know, live video segments and monetization across the user base and we're expanding into, um, you know, also potentially doing a podcast. And so I think that's been most interesting for me is how to think about this world that is increasingly online and do all the things I already like to do, which is invest, find deal flow, find investors, get with critical thinking individuals and do it all inside of a sort of media company and newsletter. And so that's been the probably most interesting thing for me of late. It is. They're building the business and uh, the media business because I first came across you on the Nick Loper Side Hustle Nation podcast, which I'd recommend to anyone, and uh, where you were talking about building up your newsletter into a business. And it's a very interesting business plan. And it's like what you say, people can actually start their own business online with very few financial inputs these days. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we started contrarian thinking with nothing, right? You know, no money in, just me typing out my thoughts and utilize Substack, which is, you know, they just received, I think now they've had about 30 or $40 million in VC funding, but it's essentially like Squarespace or WordPress for newsletters. It's a one-stop shop that does everything for you so that you can have a monetized business sort of with four steps signing up. And so we started on Substack and then grew to, you know, a pretty large user base following us along. And once that had happened, I started saying, now, wait a second, we're getting 
investors that want to invest in my you know, private equity cannabis fund to the tune of millions. And we're getting people that are starting to engage across our social media platforms. And for a year, you know, we didn't charge anything. And so now contrary and thinking is still free. But what we do is we layer on a premium newsletter version that's all about contrarian ways to cash flow. So I love that this show is about investing because that's what my obsession is. And we think about how do we get reoccurring passive or relatively income on a monthly basis in ways that nobody taught us in school. I had a great guest the other day and um, she was talking, she's got three principles and that's make money, keep money, multiply money. And it's a a great lesson, isn't it? (laughs) I like that. I'm going to steal that line. So I want to take a random walk around your work and talk about some of the points that I've come across in um, the vast research that I've undertaken into your life. Let's talk about partners in your financial life. What's the importance of partners in a financial life? Well, yeah, I mean, they can be your greatest attractors or your greatest additions. And so, you know, I think probably the most important partner that you can choose is whoever you're going to choose to live life with. You know, I'm divorced and re-engaged to somebody. And, you know, the last person that I was married to, we had a very different narrative on money. We both did relatively well. We were both in finance. And, you know, he was a big spender and was interested in the multiple country clubs and the cars and all the things that come with a fast-paced financial lifestyle. And that was when I was at Goldman Sachs at the time. And I have never been so intrigued by those things. I'm much more interested in you know, experiences, ideas, building businesses. And so, you know, that was one narrative that I didn't realize was really different between the two of us. And if I had done one thing different, it would be to really understand when you get into partnerships, how do people view money? And so with my partner now, we're very specific about that. We have separate finances. We talk to each other about how we like to spend. We talk to each other about how we want to invest in things. And we sort of have an aligned vision. And that same thing is true for the other partners in the businesses that I have. I think I run you know, seven businesses now. And in each of those businesses, I partner with partners who have a bias towards building and using your cash flow to build, as opposed to piling on a lot of capital in order to fund your business and then having to keep up to the goals that that capital has for you. And so, yeah, I think partnerships are absolutely crucial. And it's very important that uh, people, when they're going into a relationship. I mean, it's very hard when you're young and you're, you're falling in love. Finance is not the first thing that you talk about. But um, really, and as you get older, obviously, um, you can. this is one of the things on your checklist is to uh, say, okay, well, you want to make sure that your financial goals are aligned. It's so, so important in a relationship, isn't it? Critical. Yeah. I mm. think that's one of the first rules uh, that they should have taught us in college was to think about that. <laughs> so in one of your recent newsletters, you railed against the amount of energy that is wasted by people ranting about politics on social media, energy that could be better spent on getting their act together. Tell us about that. You know, I think that what I've realized is the most important thing that you can do is your everyday actions in close proximity to you. So you know, before I go and try to clean up the world, I try to focus on what my home life looks like. And then I might 
echo that out a little bit to my friend group. How can I help people there? And then I might echo that out a little bit further to how could I help people in my community? And, you know, once I've sort of aligned my life and gotten my life together, I'm infinitely more prepared to help, which is the difference between, you know, trying to help when you have no financial resources and trying to help when you have a lot of financial resources. And so, you know, from my perspective, a lot of people spend time on things that are emotionally vexing and draining, but don't actually lead to any differential. And there was a hysterical meme, I thought, that basically was saying, you know, what happened? You know, I, I posted about this 12 times and nothing changed. <laughs> and I think that might be a little bit a symptom of our generation that we think because we get amped about it on social media, something's going to change. And in fact, nothing's going to change because of that. You actually have to make the action yourself. And if you want to make change, in my opinion, the best way to do it is get yourself to financial freedom and then help other people do the same thing. Because when you operate from financial freedom, you have an ability to do the things that need to be done the hard way, not the expedient way. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So tell us about what um, thinking like the ocean is. What's that all about? (laughs) I talk about that when I talk about multiple revenue streams. One of my favorite partners, actually, he was the CEO of one of the other firms that I worked with before I sold out. He used to say, think like an ocean and have a vastness of rivers of revenue running to your ocean. So you eventually have a big pool to work from. And so what most people do is we have one income line, right? So we have what's called vertical income. We have income that comes to us from our salary, which is fine. But what you really want to start doing is have rivlets that come off of that one vertical income stream that help you accumulate in the bottom into this big ocean. And so that's what I call diversified income and what one of my mentors, David Osborne, calls horizontal income. So those are income streams that come to you even when you're not actively working on them. So how much money do you make when you're not actually in the moment working on something? And once you start thinking about it in these bifurcated ways, okay, one, do I only have one line of revenue? So do I just have one river or do I have multiple little rivers or multiple rivlets that lead to my big eventual pool that I want? Or alternatively, you could say, you know, do I have a lot of income streams that run downstream like a river does that requires me to be a part of it as opposed to income streams that are stacked horizontally? I don't have to be involved. They can just continue to profit while I sit absently by. And that is the real holy grail and tough to get when you don't understand what you're looking for. So what are some practical tips to um, identify and uh, find some of those streams coming into your ocean? Yeah, well, I I wrote one piece that I think is relatively useful. I think it's pinned at the top of contrarianthinking.substack.com, which is like 29 ways to get passive income. And essentially, I think with the internet today, the most impactful thing you could do is I challenge most people to start with making $1 on the internet. Mm. And once you've realized that you can make money on the internet, 
kind of this whole vortex opens up and you realize the infinite nature of it. You know, I started out with building that one revenue line for myself and it was with info products. So there's a site called Gumroad and this allows you to upload your educational material on whatever subject you could be. It could be knitting, you know, it could be woodworking and you upload your sort of let's call it video series on it, or you could upload a PowerPoint that explains it or a guide or resources, whatever the case may be, a toolkit, and you resell that. And so this is the, you know, the Jack Boucher create once and sell continuously model. And so I think that's one of the easiest ways to start cheap, free to enter, no barriers to entry, not probably a huge return uh, or ROI from you for you because you uh, may not have an audience. But that's one where to start. And then, you know, I like to think about investment vehicles as passive income streams. So, you know, I invest in multifamily real estate, which I think people should understand. I invest in, you know, leverage loan portfolios, which is just fixed income or debt that has a higher return on them. I do that typically through fund structures. So those pay me out on, on a monthly basis. I invest in something called Fundrise, which Fundrise is just an app that allows you to invest in real estate, multifamily or apartment buildings, whatever the case may be. And you can do it really inexpensively and then they'll pay you dividend checks. So all of those things are passive income that can come through to you without me having to do any work. And the more I can take money that I earn and turn it from vertical into horizontal income going forward, the less I am going to have to worry about my time only being allocated to feed my family and take care of us. It's interesting that you say that about the um, find a dollar on the internet, make a dollar on the internet, because yeah, obviously there's there's a million ways of doing it, but I think people are put off by that idea. They want to sort of go and crack the big time straight away. They want to get in there and make you know thousands of dollars straight away. But it's a different mindset, isn't it? It's just um, starting to work out. Okay, we're starting with a trickle, and it's going to be a process to turn it into a rushing stream, isn't it? Yes. The thing that I like to think about with income streams is it's just like investments. It compounds. So, you know, the first time you put a dollar in the stock market, you're probably not going to get $100 back immediately. But if you take that dollar and you add more dollars to it, and then you continue to invest, you know, through dollar cost averaging on a consistent basis, and then you take the earnings that you have from investing in the stock market, the dividends, and you put them back in, you have a compounding effect, which means that your money starts working for you. And the same thing is true when you start earning on the internet or earning through pacified income streams. Your money starts compounding. So the first info product that you make, yeah, maybe you only make 50 bucks on it, but that's 50 bucks you didn't have before. And now you're learning a skill set and that skill set allows your skills to compound and the money on the internet to compound. And so that's what I think people should really think about is how can I create a flywheel, which there's another article that kind of talks about how to create a flywheel on contrarian thinking that allows me to do multiple different small experiments and create a portfolio of small bets in order that I can have diversified income through lots of these experiments. And so maybe your first product is an info product. And then maybe the second product that you create is a paid newsletter. Maybe the third product you create is an event. But you use all of these different types of monetization efforts in order to create a flywheel and they each sell more of each other. So if you have the event and that's the third thing you create, you can sell your premium newsletter there. You can also sell your info product there. You can also sell people by getting them to engage with your social media. 
But if you have an event and you don't have any of those other monetization streams, then you really have one way to make money, which is maybe ticket sales, right? Mm. So let's move on to contrarian thinking. What's your uh, broad brushstroke description of contrarian investing and thinking? Yeah, I like to say that uh, we teach people how to think critically and cash flow unconventionally. And the idea is to get people to, you know, open their damn brains and break their financial chains. You know, it all sort of started in, let's call it January of 2020, when the world was starting to feel to me like you couldn't question things. And I'm a former journalist and a former journalist in conflict regions along the US-Mexico border. And I happen to know that questions are the most critical thing that we have, is our ability to question. And I think if we lose that, we as a society are in a very precarious position. And I found that to be true through journalism multiple years, through investing multiple years, and now through business building. If you can ask the right questions, you can usually find the answers that you need. And so if as a society, we are continuing to ask less questions and instead believe whatever narrative is in front of us, and I don't mean politically, I mean, left, right, or otherwise, I think most people do this. And so my goal was, let's get people to start thinking critically, debate me, let's have conversations on subjects that we don't disagree about at all, or that we don't agree about at all. And, and that's what started contrarian thinking. But then I realized that people were scared to think critically because they were scared of what people would think about them. And why were they scared about what people would think about them? Because they controlled their finances. There's a fantastic statistic that's just totally blew my mind from actually the Census Bureau that 95 of 100 Americans, if you follow them from the time they enter the workforce until the time they retire, 95 of them will be financially dependent on somebody else and or dead. So there are only five out of 100 Americans that will be financially independent by the time that they retire. Wow. And that is amazing to me. There are only one out of 100 will be what we would consider wealthy, meaning they're financially free. They don't need to work ever again. They have plenty of money. And then you have three people that can retire, but will have to be quite tight on their savings. And then the rest of the people will either be dead or dependent on the government or have to keep working for the rest of their life. And so, of course, people were scared to question things because they were starting to feel like if they questioned things, they could take away their financial freedom. And you don't have much freedom if you don't have financial freedom. And so the goal here is twofold. Think critically because that's the only way you're going to be successful and then get free financially so you have the right to feel comfortable thinking. That's a great goal. It's a fantastic goal. So let's move on to uh, cannabis as well. And you're a bit of a proselytizer for uh, the cannabis industry. Sorry, I've read quite a bit about it lately, but was it you that mentioned that in the recent election, not many people realized how many states have decriminalized and legalized cannabis? Yeah. I mean, one in three Americans now lives in a state where they can access medicinal or recreational cannabis. And, you know, for the first time since prohibition of cannabis, we have 55% of people age 65 and over are pro-cannabis, 68% of the broad population. So I think federal legalization is coming much quicker than we anticipate. And the joke in the cannabis world is, you know, who won the election? Uh, weed. And, uh, and, and I think it's a little bit true since now, you know, we had five new states legalize recreational marijuana. Mm. So investing in um, cannabis, you see this as a generational opportunity? I do. You know, 
the one thing that I always look for in markets is I'm not sure I'm intelligent enough to compete in the world's most competitive markets and win, but I've been pretty good in my career of finding markets that are nascent or emerging and starting to play in those arenas. And before the big guys get in, having an arbitrage opportunity where I can make money because not a lot of people are in the mix. And I did that in emerging markets in Chile and Mexico and Brazil and Colombia and then cannabis. Because essentially, most of the large institutional players have these vice clauses that don't allow them to invest in the industry yet. And so there wasn't much capital. And so what I'm seeing here is you have an industry that is the fastest growing industry, 24% compound annual growth each year. And this industry needs money desperately and can't get its hands on it because you need money to grow. And so we allow them to get access to capital. And for that, we're compensated pretty handsomely. Okay. Let's break it down into the various sorts. There's the medicinal and the recreational. What are the differences between the investment world for each of those areas? So honestly, I wouldn't invest in medicinal companies broadly from a distribution or a retail standpoint in the long term. 69% of cannabis users reported in a study by BDS Analytics, they use cannabis for what we would deem wellness reasons, sleep, depression, symptoms from cancer, anxiety, And so cannabis largely has some wellness or medicinal aspect to it. The thing is with the medicinal markets, you have to be careful because as recreational markets come online and people can get access to the plant direct as opposed to having to go through the medicinal units and get registered and get a card and all of that, they tend to choose, as we've seen over time, the recreational market instead and just go instead to a dispensary. And so where I think the medicinal market is interesting is at the pharmaceutical level. There's certainly going to be derivatives in the pharmaceutical area of cannabis that'll be very successful, such as, you know, we've already seen GW Pharmaceuticals be one of the largest cannabis companies out there. So I do think there's a play in pharmaceutical for cannabis, and I do think there's a play in medicinal for individual products. So how do um, people invest in uh, these? Are there direct stocks or are there ETFs or funds that people can look at to invest in? Yes. So we run a cannabis fund. It's for accredited or qualified investors only and invests in the private markets. So venture capital or private equity. And so that's one way. The other thing I think is interesting is You can certainly invest in the public markets. Lots of people are doing that. You can now do it at Fidelity, Schwab. There's broad access to the cannabis stocks. There's a little bit of a concern about volatility and liquidity, how much access there is, but the stocks are normalizing. So you see a lot of the big MSOs, which is just a fancy way to say companies that have cannabis operations in multiple states, those companies are often listed on the public exchanges in Canada. So you buy them on the TSX, and now that's actually available. There is quite a relationship and a nexus between Canada and the US in terms of this market, isn't it? Yes, I think that is certainly true. Why is that? Well, Canada really led the way. Canada was the first country that allowed for widespread legalization of cannabis, both medicinally and then recreationally, in sort of, let's say, a commercial way. And so, you know, without Canada, we probably would not have the market that we have today in cannabis. You also say that branding is the next stage in cannabis investment. I'm assuming you're meaning that uh, once brands reach a critical mass, that they're going to become the market leaders, say like 
you know, leading products in other sectors? Yes, I do think that brands are starting to become real in the cannabis space. So at this point, there's very little loyalty to any individual brands. There's a huge dispersion of brands. You typically do not see the same brands across state lines. So every state in the US has a different sort of Whole Foods lineup of products. And obviously, this will change. So going forward, we will no longer have a set amount of brands and we'll be able to cross state lines. And I think you've already seen that. We have one portfolio company, Can, that just inked a deal with GTI, one of the largest cannabis companies out there, to be distributed across the country. And this is a microdosed THC beverage company that I happen to love. And I think we'll start to see more and more deals like that. Branding is starting to actually matter as opposed to before people slapped whatever labels they wanted on it. Is there anything else I've missed out about the cannabis world that you'd like to add? I think legalization will happen the next two to five years. And the window prior to legalization is probably a great arbitrage opportunity. So if people aren't looking at it, they certainly should. And if you reach out at Contrarian Thinking, I'm happy to chat with you more about it. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. And uh, of course, we'll put links to all of these and uh, your Substack and everything in the show notes so that people can find all this information. Just if we could finish off with, uh, many people come to this podcast because of the name, it's Stocks for Beginners. People hear about stocks, they hear about GameStop and they hear about people making lots and lots of money from um, the stock market and they want a piece of the action. Is there any piece of advice that you would give people who are approaching the world of investing for the first time in their lives? Oh, it's great. Gosh, I feel like you and I could go about this for hours. We could talk for hours. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but a couple of things that I would say, which is you're never going to feel like you have enough savings to meaningfully start investing soon enough. Like You should always start before I think you feel ready to start investing. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't have savings right now. And one of the first things I tell people is, if you don't have savings right now, you need to do two things. One, you need to immediately go look at all of your set expenses and renegotiate them. Go to your landlord, try to negotiate a cheaper rent. They'll often do that to keep you in place. Go to your car dealer and try to negotiate a better and cheaper car payment or even a cheaper loan if you have a loan on your car and or trade in for a cheaper vehicle. If you have big expenses on a monthly basis, such as, I don't know, internet, insurance, whatever the case may be, go and try to negotiate with those providers. And if they won't give you a cheaper rate, then find another provider. What you'll find is that you're able to save pretty much across the top, anywhere from 10 to 30%. And I play this game every so often with my cousins because they're younger to teach them the same thing. And I will call up the last time we did it was with their cable, which is funny now. I don't even think we have cable. But we called up the cable provider and basically said, this is the rate I need cheaper. And we just kept asking that. I need cheaper. What can you do to get me cheaper? And by the end of it, we had taken a bill that was about 100 bucks a month down to about $40 a month. And so you'll be amazed how many times you can negotiate things that we, at least in the US, feel uncomfortable negotiating. And so there is no downside. You're just going to learn to become a better negotiator, even if they say no. So start there. Second thing would be negotiate the same thing with your employer. So if you're having a hard time finding enough money to save, I'd ask you, how frequently do you negotiate pay raises? And most people will say, honestly, never. They never do it. They leave if they're uncomfortable with the amount, and they take whatever the offer is on both sides. And that is a terrible strategy. So I would say start negotiating right now. And the way you do this is not being a jerk and saying, I want more money or I'm leaving, but instead going to your employer and saying, hey, I want to start making more. What could I do to have that happen? 
you will be amazed at how the conversation goes. They might give you more responsibility. They might change your commission rate. You can be very creative with the way you negotiate pay. But if you decrease your expenses and increase your earnings, you automatically are going to have a delta that you can start investing in the market with. And whereabouts would you start investing in the market? I think for when it comes to stock market investing, I keep it stupid simple to start. You know, I go with like a Betterment or a Wealthfront for stock market investing, or I go to Vanguard, lowest cost possible, highest ease of use. Then I go to something like Fundrise for real estate investing to add an alternative to my portfolio. And then I probably in today's world think about an allocation to some sort of crypto, whether that's, you know, using Coinbase or Gemini or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, the next thing that I might think about doing is, you know, if you are optimizing for cash flow, which I like to do because I like to be paid immediately for every deal that I make, who doesn't, then I would look at dividend paying stocks and I would look at dividend paying funds and I would look at where can I get some yields in a world that is largely yieldless because of how low rates are. So you can start those little trickles into streams and raging rivers. Exactly, exactly right. And then you're not playing the speculation game entirely. You don't have to sell to realize. But you know, it's interesting because that's not the traditional insider advice that people give. Usually people say go and diversify in stocks and if you're young, a lot of stocks and less bonds. And I think that's fine, but then you, you know, you're playing a different game. I'm optimizing so that my expenses are totally covered by the income that I make. And now that I've surpassed that, any new assets or anything else that I want to buy, I want to be able to cover them with the assets that are with the income that I make. And so it just feels like more freedom to me that way. Mm. So how can listeners find more about Cody World? Well, I think probably the easiest space is contrarianthinking.co. So if you go to contrarianthinking.co, sign up, there's a free email list there. You get an email every single week from me and you can peruse all the historicals talking about all the different ways that we cash flow and get you to push your brain a little bit. And then I'm actually really active now on Twitter and Instagram. So either one of those. Twitter might be better for serious investors. And I think Instagram might be better for newbies. Fantastic. Cody Sanchez, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great research. I got to up my game. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.